Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Galaxy's Greatest Podcast about the two great 90s space station shows, Babylon 5 versus DS9. We are part of Uncanny Treks. I am Bob from Cascadia. That's Matt from the Southland. How you doing tonight, Matt? Doing pretty well. Lots of, uh, lots of sex, Bob. Lots of sex in these, uh, these episodes. Yeah, yeah. It's a kind of, you know, we talk about the surprising uh, synchronicities that you sometimes get when you're putting two shows head to head like this. And so, yeah, we happen to have a very, very sexy episodes of both. Very, very kind of interesting coincidence. Rather, rather thirsty. All right. So the two episodes we're talking about, Bob, this week are... Voices of Authority, which is Babylon 5, Season 3, Episode 5, originally aired on the 29th of January, 1996. And then we're talking about DS9, Season 4, Episode 6, Rejoined, originally aired on the 30th of October, 1995. So it looks like uh, Babylon 5 took a little hiatus in the winter. Yeah, Babylon 5 had a, a pretty irregular release schedule, whereas it seemed like, I think, DS9 was always able to more or less do like a fall block and a spring block. You know, it seems like Babylon 5 got like divided into smaller blocks and that like sometimes like the last block of a season would air next to the first block of the new season, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. It's just surprising because they're so, they were kind of close a couple of the last couple episodes. Now we're starting to get further apart. Yeah, I am, I am kind of, I was kind of, it wasn't intentional in how I drew the schedule together. But like a kind of fun coincidence was that after we got done with the first two seasons of DS9, we were at the place where Babylon 5 and DS9 were airing, not exactly the same week, but they were broadly airing at the same time. But because of all the irregular breaks on Babylon 5, yeah, now we're a couple months back on Babylon 5. And I'm unsure if like we'll restore that or if there'll be longer delays. And so the calendar will fall apart a little more. Well, Bob, in the A-plot of Voices of Authority, Julie Musant... A. Musante? Is that how we want to say it? I think it's Musante. Musante. Sheridan's new political officer and a blonde Republican, Deputy Allen and Jakar get close to discovering the secret of the War Council. Indeed, indeed. Very close to discovering the secret of the War Council. That was my typo. Um, and then in the B-plot, we've got Ivanova and Drawl, which is surprisingly his last appearance. Use the Great Machine to search for other first ones to aid in the coming Shadow War. Ivanova in the Great Machine amplifies her latent telepathy, encounters the walkers of Sigma 957, who dislike the Vorlon but are still willing to join up. And Ivanova sees the shadows and a past deal between Vice President Clark and Mr. Morden to assassinate President Santiago. Ivanova is also blessed with the sight of Sheridan making out with a naked Masante. That's correct. So, a couple of extra characters in this episode, one being Drawl. Yeah, yeah. I Were you excited to have Drawl back? Uh, he was better than his last appearance this time around. Um, anytime we see like the great machine, you know, some like weird shit's going to go down that episode, but I, I was more disappointed though, that we did not see Zothras. Yeah. Don't worry. Zathras, Zathras will be back. Don't you worry. Uh, well, okay. Zathras will be back, but uh, apparently this is the last appearance of Drawl. I believe so. Unless I'm making a horrible mistake. I believe this is the last appearance of Drawl. See, I find that very strange because he's been... In three episodes already. Yeah, yeah. I, I, like, the Great Machine and Zathras continue to be a force somewhat, but Drawl kind of drops out. Um, it's kind of weird. It's kind of weird. Well, I'll have to keep that in the back of my mind. 
I guess at this point we should go ahead and just point out that the last time we uh, had an episode withdrawal, neither of us actually caught that it was a different actor. I actually stated in the episode that I just thought he had shaved, and that was it. So, <laughs> so your, your humiliation, in a sense, is greater than mine, so I will uh, take that. Although, I guess we should point out that we did realize our error when the actor who first played Draw then shows up playing Brother Theo. True. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, so uh, usually it's me who's uh, boring you with talk about uh, what other stuff the actors have done. Like, you know, I might point out that the second actor playing Draw, John Shuke, played a Klingon ambassador in Star Trek Four and Six. But now it's your time to talk to me about other stuff an actor has done. Yeah, let's talk about the actress who played uh, Musante, Bobby. Her name is Sherry Shattuck. Okay? All right. When she, when she wasn't on Babylon 5, Bob... She started in several like softcore, you know, Skinamax films, like you know, Cinemax. That was always more your specialty. Than <laughs> Premium TV, my specialty. I guess I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> she was also on the cover of Playboy. And uh, okay, okay. But but let's just talk about her acting. Bob was just not that great. Um, I actually thought it was pretty entertaining. I, I enjoyed her performance. Um, maybe that's just because I have a thing for blonde Republicans. Uh, I, I deeply want to have my throat stepped on uh, by a, uh, a fascist ice queen. That's just that's just where I'm at. Um, but yeah, I I actually did look look up her IMDb and I didn't recognize anything else, which is why I didn't say anything about it in the notes. And so I'm very amused to know that your more thorough research turned that up, where I just read the names of Skinamax uh, films and did not catch on that they were in fact uh, softcore Skinamax films. You're welcome, guys. Glad I could do the research. You d you d you did a hell of a lot of research in the '90s for this moment, Matt. It all paid off for you. <laughs> <laughs> I will say she also occasions uh, one of my favorite lines from Sheridan, which is, I don't mind doing my part. I just object to doing their part as well. Yeah, Sheridan had some great stuff this, this episode. It's always like a good Sheridan-centric episode. Yeah, yeah. He's, he, I mean, you know, no, no disrespect to our prior commander, Sinclair, but eh, Sheridan's just a lot more charismatic, and it's a lot more fun to see him in awkward situations. Yeah, which is like totally what this episode was all about. I will say that, uh, you know, we confessed our mutual mistake about draw. I have to confess another mistake, which is way, way back in season one, when we saw um, Sinclair's girlfriend, Catherine Sakai, encounter the walkers of Sigma 957. I incorrectly told you that although we would see more beings like that, we would not be the walkers again. And I was wrong. So feel free to gloat. Feel free to laugh at me. Feel free to make fun. Ha ha, Bob. You didn't remember that alien species from that show that came out in 96. Man, I, I just, I thought you would enjoy me being wrong a little more than this, Matt, but you just seem bored. That's, that's a shame. You can't even, you can't even uh, take joy in my humiliation anymore. No, yes, I can't. But let me just get this up. Let me, let me get this straight up, Bob. The Walkers of Sigma 957, that's the same species that Catherine Sakai, who was Sinclair's girlfriend, that yes. she visited in Mind War. Yes. All the way back in season one. Okay. Yes. So that, yeah, I, I, I vaguely remember the, like the, the gaseous, rocky gash, gas creature or whatever thing it was in space. Yeah. I don't think we see them as up close in that as we do here. We don't. They're just like big, like space anomaly looking things. 
But yeah, uh, I will say yeah. that the the way it's the way they're shown in this episode, it reminds me of something like Jim Henson would come up with for like a villain on Fraggle Rock or something like that. The little like the, fa- <laughs> the way the all the rocks on his face move as his mouth opens. It's like a big it's like a big ass puppet. Yeah, you go to Fraggle Rock. I, I was kind of thinking of the floating head from Zardoz. That's where my mind went. Yes. Lis- yeah. Listeners, if you've not seen Zardoz, you should see it. Amazing uh, Sean Connery movie that I can only imagine was just made under the influence of mountains of cocaine. <laughs> yeah. Also, what's up with the, like, the disco ball ships? Hey, man, you know, you gotta, you gotta go what's the most efficient way to space travel. Sometimes it's a disco ball. Okay. So, did you, okay, Sigma nine five seven people is that their spaceships? I think so. I, God, I mean, it's been a week, man. <laughs> I'm just saying they got like they look at rocky faces and stuff, and I, I don't understand how they fit in the ships. I'm just it's weird. You're not supposed to understand, Matt. You're a lesser being. <laughs> I don't understand these first ones. We're we're lesser beings. We're not we're not fit. To, when you see Muppetry, I see wisdom beyond our kin. It's just very <laughs> different, dog. Very different. We must consult Marcus on this problem. Marcus will tell us. Oh God, where 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 does Marcus come up in this? I can't. Oh yeah, because he and uh, he and Ivanova are, are bickering about how to negotiate with the Walkers. Oh God. Oh yeah, and Bob, Bob, were they flirting? Was was he flirting with her? Yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of a shame that after the you know kind of groundbreaking uh, episode between Winners and Ivanova last season. Now we have to give Ivanova this doofus as a love interest. They're doing a Han and Leia thing. I can see it already. Grim. Grim. Uh, to other characters, Bob, such as Alan. Yeah, we see Garibaldi getting to rake Alan over the coals for joining the Night's Watch. That was a, that was a good fit. I enjoyed that. Speaking of ill fit, Bob, did you notice that Alan's coat seems to be ill fit and everyone is noticing I did notice it. No, I don't think there's any symbolism. And no, I don't think you should use your William Shatner voice to make it sound more pretentious than it actually is. So, Bob, you don't think there's symbolism there that he feels out of place? No, I don't think Just there's like symbolism his, there, man. His, his coat, his coat is out of place? It's no. ill-fitting? No. Okay. No, you should stop. There's no I'm just saying there. that both Garibaldi and Musante both point this out. So I, I yes, thought it was something important. Yes, because his suit doesn't fit. <laughs> no, I... I, it, it's something that's there. I'm just saying that there's no symbolism. It's just that his suit doesn't fit. Okay. All right. So I want to go back to the great machine because Ivanova is a latent telepath. That is why she can operate the machine. Correct. Uh, no, she doesn't have to be. My understanding is she wouldn't have to be a telepath to operate it, but because she's a latent telepath, that makes the operation go differently than she and Drawl expect. Awesome. Okay, that's pretty much what I got from it. Yeah, yeah. So we finally get proof that uh, Clark was conspiring to kill Santiago, although it doesn't seem like it'll necessarily matter. So this basically means that Morden has been making uh, deals with the Earth Force. That's not good. Yeah, yeah. That's a bad yeah. thing. Earth Force yep. and the government. So the, yep. so the shadows are on the side of the Earth Force. Indeed, indeed. That's why you've got the uh, alliance between the Earth Force and the Centauri. Oh, it's all starting to make sense now. All coming together. 
So how's Babylon 5 going to handle that? You'll be very interested to see how they handle it. But Babylon 5 is Earth Force, Bob. They can't go against their own, own peoples. Or can't can they? they? Can't they? they? They can, Bob. They can. I see kind of where this is going now. Hope our <laughs> listeners are as well. So I guess the last thing I'll uh, check us in on is I really do enjoy the final scene between Jakara and Garibaldi. Uh, Jakara just shows up, says, the book of Jaquan, read it, then we'll talk. Um, Garibaldi's like, I don't read Narn. Jakar just says learn, and then he strolls off. Yeah, that's almost like some Vorlon level shit there. Oh, it's great. It's great. Yeah, no, it's it's good stuff. And it's, you know, good to see Jakar kind of get getting back into the swing of things. He's been kind of sidelined uh, this season ever since, you know, the Narn regime has fallen, and so he has no institutional legitimacy anymore. So good to see him, like, getting back into the swing of things. Yeah, I do want to point out here, Bob, that uh, you know at the beginning of the episode when Jakar is talking to Delenn, what did Delenn have to say about the uh, the War Council? I don't remember. What did she say? She had to tell a lie, Bob. A lie. Uh... That she had no idea what the War Council actually is. She lied. Uh... Lying Delenn. I'm telling you. Lying Delenn. They shouldn't have made that, that, that <laughs> statement early on. All these Mimbari are lying. Well, to go back to your theory, now that she's a, a Mimbari human hybrid, maybe uh, she now has the biological ability to lie that she lacked as a Mimbari. Because you know, why, why, why not just make it a bio- Why not just make lying a biological trait? You know, that that makes total sense. All right. Anything else about this episode, Bob? We're going to move on to DS Nine. No, no. Let's uh, let's move on to Rejoined. Um, you know, it's you could call it the uh, DS 9s uh, lesbian kiss episode. That was apparently a, a whole genre of '90s TV was the lesbian kiss episode. Yes. Yeah, so in the A plot, Jadzia encounters her ex-wife and a new host. Indeed. And in the B plot, Latinum keeps getting pulled out of corpse here. Yep. That's a B plot. Yeah, there's not much of a B-plot, but always good to see Quark off-put. Although I do have to say, uh, Dax doing like the miming for the sleight of hand before she initially pulls the Latinum out of Quark's ear, very disturbing for some reason. Yeah, it was like, it was like a mom teaching a little kid, like some kind of like, you know, trick or whatever, how to do a sleight of hand. It it, it was really weird. Yeah, she don't need to do that anymore. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I just really hate mimes, I think is what it comes down to. And yeah. I've like broadened that out to any sort of like in-depth miming. It just disturbs me on some level. Mimes are scary. So on one hand, we've got like a historic episode here. It helps pioneer same-sex representation on TV. And it does do an interesting exploration of uh, Trill society. Uh, on the other hand, the episode more or less associates the Trill taboo uh, against reassociation with the incest taboo, which, uh, you know, that's kind of a shitty way to represent homosexuality. That's maybe not the best way to do it. Hey, Bob, it was 1995. They, they did the best they could. I mean, I feel like even if they couldn't directly do uh, a kind of lesbian plot or a bisexual plot, like, I, you know, you could, you could not associate homosexuality with incest. That's always something you could not do. That's always an option. But it was the it was the mid '90s, Bob. Yeah, yeah. So we could give a kind of quick uh, history of queer kissing on TV. So, did you ever watch L.A. Law? Uh, I remember the theme song. That's about it. Yeah, I never did either. Although it had it had a lot of good actors on it. Apparently, a lot of them show up on Babylon Five. 
but it's I think the first American show to do a stunt kiss, but it's between women, but it's between a bisexual woman and a straight woman, and it kind of inaugurated the genre in the '90s of like you know this week on Roseanne or this week on whatever, you know, there'll be, you know, usually it's like a straight woman gets kissed by a lesbian or a straight woman gets kissed by a bisexual woman. Yes. And so that was basically all you had in the nineties. As far as I could tell, the first kiss that's actually between lesbians um, on TV is in 1997. It's on a show called Relativity. I've never heard of Relativity. I don't know what it is. I've never heard of it either, Bob, which is maybe they were like a local access channel or something. I, I think it was a little more than that, probably. And then in 2000, you had uh, the first actual gay kiss or like the first actual like man-on-man kiss in Dawson's Creek in 2000. I do remember that because they made a big deal out of it. And I was probably old enough at that point, too. I was in, like, I was in high school, so... Did you ever watch Dawson's Creek? I, I, like, I saw the advertisements, but never like, really had any sense of what it really was. I watched a lot of like the documentaries and stuff about stuff that happened in the nineties and the early two thousands and stuff like that. And they always go back to that particular scene. And by, by the documentaries, you mean the VH1 documentaries, right? Well, duh, Bob, what else, who else does documentaries history channel? I know. I just want, I just wanted to, to humiliate you a little bit for being a VH1 fanatic. That's all. That's all. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, there's nothing right with it either. True. So, I don't know. It's an interesting episode. You, you, you were going to make a point about connecting it to the Babylon 5 Season 2 episode, yeah? In the Babylon 5 episode, Divided Loyalties, we finally realized that there's definitely something that's going on between Winters and Ivanova, but it is nothing to compare to kind of what went down in this episode, which, I mean, I'm surprised they got away with this in 1995, but I bet that JMS was kicking his own ass for not pushing the boundary during that Divided Loyalties episode. Yeah, although I guess we don't really know like what strictures the network put on uh, JMS because he was at this kind of like weird marginal network, whereas DS9 because it was like a syndicated show might have had a little more freedom, you know? Right, it's on CBS. Yeah, yeah, but it, yeah, syndicated show on CBS, and you know, like for us, it was like what airing like Saturday mornings or Sunday mornings. Sunday morning, yeah, was when DS9 yeah, was airing. Like Saturday night and Sunday morning, so potentially like an Anderson and established franchise, so all that potentially makes it easier to get away with. Yeah, I feel like JMS could have really done something there, but no. I don't know. Other things we see in this episode, we see what Bajoran dress uniforms look like, which I had honestly forgotten were a thing. Yeah, I did too. And we see uh, Kira flirting with Worf about what Klingons dream about, and then she uh, actually can't tell if he's joking about when he talks about how horrible Klingon nightmares are. That was a that was a kind of amusing bit. More of this sort of Kira Dax Worf triangle stuff that they were doing in season four. That's all we need in the next episode, next season of Picard. We need them going inside Worf's head. Yeah, yeah. And um, what else? I mean, we've got Dax recruiting Bashir to be uh, her third wheel. That's pretty amusing. Yeah, I found his, like, boredom amusing when he was, like, having to listen to both of them talk about their previous host and the people they knew as previous hosts and all this shit. Like, (laughs) (laughs) that would get really boring. Indeed, indeed. And then uh, I know you're always a sucker for good Cisco and Dax friendship moments. Yeah, the whole, I will back you all the way. I've lived seven lifetimes and never had a friend quite like you. Oh, so yeah, sweet. Yeah, very sweet. Very sweet from uh, Dax and Cisco. 
So we do have a random Eddington appearance this episode, and I was sort of half expecting him to rat out Dax and Khan, given his prior experiences. Yeah, I felt the exact same way. They ought to have, like, Eddington just, like, popping out of the Jerry tubes every couple of episodes to remind you he's there. It's Jeffrey's tubes, not Jerry, not Jerry tubes. Jeff, I'm really bad with men names today. Jeffrey's tubes. Yeah, popping out and uh, just ratting on somebody just yeah. just because that's what he does. Yeah, lower decks, you're allowed to take that joke if you want to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I don't know. Since this is the lesbian kiss episode, does it make sense to transition over to Thirst Watch, Matt? Sure. So on Thirst Watch, Bob, this is just like these are two of the thirstiest episodes we've had in a while. The whole Musante seduction act in the B5 episode was way more thirst than I expected for 1995 television. It was a lot of thirst. I approved. It was good. It was yeah. good. But I think at this point, though, they'd already had like some levels of nudity on television with NYPD Blue. So... Well, and it wasn't even, like, real. I mean, it was real nudity, but it, like you, it's not like you saw anything. Right. But that was still kind of... like... That was, that was still kind of pushing boundaries in 95, Bob. All right. I don't, I don't actually think it was, but... <laughs> I was there, Bob. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it wasn't pushing boundaries, Matt. So do you, uh, but here's my, here's one thing I have about the thirst, Bob, that I need to ask you about. Do you think that Musante and Alan had something going on? No, absolutely not. Clearly Alan wanted to have something going on and clearly she had no interest. But what about when like Sheridan didn't, you know, when she wasn't satisfied by Sheridan. So she like went for I second mean, best. They're settling and then there's degrading yourself, Matt. Um, we all have to settle, but Julia Masante doesn't uh, strike me as a person who would degrade herself by getting with Alan. No, she doesn't want a hickey from Kanicki. Oh, God. Oh, God. Don't forget I, that uh, dude was in Greece, Bob. That, that, that's where everybody knows him from. He yes! Was. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because Ivanova is uh, mocking Masante, we did get another kind of Star Trek dig uh, where Ivanova tells Sheridan that he's about to go where everyone has gone before. Which, on the one oh. hand, is pretty funny. On the other, it is a, it's, it's a little shitty, too, though. It's kind of a shitty dig. Yeah, but it, pretty, it was pretty shitty. It, it, it was somewhat amusing. And then I did really appreciate that uh, Musante praises Sheridan's negotiating skills because he's able to keep saying no and keep putting her off. That was pretty interesting. It's good writing on their part. All right, so lot, lots of thirst, Bob. I, I think we covered it all, though. Character of the Week. My character of the week is Dax. We had an interesting trill kind of exclusive scenario that I felt Terry Farrell handled rather well. Good acting on Terry Farrell's part this week. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. I could see that. I, I don't know. I just have so, so much mixed feelings about the episode. That eh. I went with Missante. I've always had a thing for Ice Queen Republicans. And honestly, like having an antagonistic political officer on the station would have been an interesting thing if they continued with it instead of her being a one-off character. Yeah, they like never continue with some of these people they bring on the station. They're just, you never hear from them again. I'm assuming she yeah. doesn't come back, correct? No, no, not, not to the best of my knowledge. Never comes back. So, Bob, episode of the week uh, goes to Voices of Authority. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. I could see that. I would, I would also go there. Like, eh, you know, just in general, kind of better episode, funnier kind of more well-realized, I think, than Rejoined. I agree. 
All right. Well, this has been Babylon 5 versus DS9, the galaxy's greatest podcast about the two great 90s space station shows. I am Bob in Cascadia. That is Matt in the Southland. We are part of Uncanny Treks, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening.